Uh, but that's where we're starting, because if I am being honest, if I think of the uh, phrase triumphal entry, this is the image I would want for myself, right? Like the pizzazz, the glamour, the showmanship, like all the crowd, the cheering, like the, the elephants, like the rumble coming in. If I was having a grand entry, this is what I would want if I'm being really honest, right? But unfortunately, uh, maybe, unfortunately, maybe not, I don't know, but my life has never had that sort of grand entry, and I would imagine no one else in here uh, has had that as well. Maybe we've been a part of Christmas parades or some other community festival. I was thinking about my own life. The closest thing I could at first that came up was like my wedding day, but then I started realizing like I got dressed up but I was more of an accessory to my beautiful bride. Like, she's the one that really got the triumphal entry, right? Um, and so that was like, well, that doesn't work. And then, like, the best lame thing I could come up with when it was all about me was, like, a big high school baseball game and, you know, getting to choose my walk-up song. I'm going to, like, lame date myself here, but a little uh, thousand-foot crutch and, you know, throwing up my rock fist and getting ready to go have my moment at the plate. But... When it comes to triumphal entries, uh, I would imagine mine was a little lame compared to Aladdin. Um, and he really sets a, a bar high, right? But 2,000 plus years ago, the idea of a Roman triumphal entry wasn't something that was um, completely a foreign thought. In fact, when it came to the spoils of war, when it came to like, um, like bringing in uh, a, a general or like a, just a victorious um, commander of sorts, there would have been like this clearing of the streets. There would have been a processional all the way into the city. The city government officials would have started and they'd have been like there at the front saying, hey, look at the guy that we brought on. Look at the guy that we hired. Like that this person's ready to bring it. And then it had been followed by all the, like, the sacrificial animals that they would be wanting to um, sacrifice to their God. And then it ultimately led by a chariot, their champion, and some sort of like probably uh, purple regalia. And then followed by his, you know, commanders and warriors and such. And then like their spoils of war. And then ultimately um, their captives. And that's what like the idea of a triumphal entry would have been in those days. And this would have been followed by celebrations that included festivals. It would have included dancing and singing. And the party would have gone on all because of this victorious war that had been claimed. So the people of Jerusalem at this time, triumphal entries were nothing new. The thought of, maybe some of them had seen, they have even heard of. They knew what they were about. They knew what was going on. And so here we are with an excitement in the city that they probably already had some level of some military heroes coming in because Passover is about to happen. So you probably already had extra security coming into the city. And so the crowds and like the murmuring and the excitement levels would have started to build. And that is the scene of Jesus' triumphal entry that we're about to read about in Matthew 21. And what's amazing about this, when I think about my own personal if I'm being really honest, like the selfish, all about me, the pizzazz of Aladdin, like that's the entry I would want. But yet here we're about to set the stage of Jesus saying, you know what? I'm not about looking at me. I'm not about the grandeur. I'm literally about setting the stage right here and right now for the greatest gift ever given to us and mankind. And that is the gift that we get to celebrate as we enter into this week. So let me read in Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. And you can read along on the screen or in your own Bibles. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came um, to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. 
untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and, will, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your kingdom is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on, the, um, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and they followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Talk about a party, talking about the excitement, talk about the frenzy in the air. But when Jesus rode into town on a donkey, he was making a powerful statement that is so easy to forget when it comes to church and our religious minds and, and trying to think through. Because instead of riding on a horse, instead of coming in with the bazaars that kind of maybe would even be expected, here is Jesus coming in, arriving, arriving on the scene humbly. And whether the crowd understood the message and the imagery going on right now, they probably didn't. There probably would be more like me and totally oblivious to what was happening. But what was clear is they were excited to see Jesus. They knew of the miracles that he had performed. They knew of all of the miraculous things that had happened, the, the, um, the healings and the teachings. And they would have been thrilled by this. What is he going to bring to our city? What is he going to bring? What miracles are about to happen? What experience do we get to be a part of? And they were ready to celebrate with him. And with that kind of welcome in this moment, it would have been difficult for even his followers to imagine anything but a happy ending to this whole entry. It would have been easy for them to imagine like where they were ready to be celebrated and to celebrate all that was coming and that what they were like their ministry, the last few years of giving up everything and following Jesus, like in their minds, I imagine there's this, this whole thing is coming full circle right here, right now, and they're about to get to be a part of it. And there would be an excitement and energy. If you've taken time and really studied the life of Jesus, um, one of the things that we know that all throughout scriptures, there's illustration after illustration of just showing how the kingdom of God does look, doesn't look like anything that we and our man-made, man-desires typically create. That the kingdom of God is not one through violence, it's not won through pomp and circumstances, but ultimately it was won by sacrifice. It was won by bridging the gap of sin for you and for me and conquering of death. And so even if unknowingly the people shouting out, Hosanna, 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 even if unknowingly they were ushering in this beautiful, inclusive kingdom of God, the start of that for to be open and available to all Jew and Gentile, this is the beauty in the stage that was set at this moment in time. And so that, with that imagery in our mind, that's where we begin our understanding of today, that Jesus didn't walk in as an entry. He didn't come in as an entry, as a victor, but one who was marching towards death, illustrating the victory to come, illustrating the sacrifice through humility to come. There's beauty in that. You know, there was a book I read about a year ago or so that was given to me um, called Jesus and John Wayne, and maybe you've heard of it. But an interesting thing the author tries to make as an illustration is that we as the church as evangelicals we've become fixated on creating 
and replacing Jesus in the modern church with this idea and idol of rugged masculinity. And instead of allowing Jesus to be who he claims to be, like we, we create this false image to fit a mindset of our own. And I would imagine, just like us, the people of Jerusalem were trying to fit Jesus into a narrative they have created. They would have known the stories of the Old Testament. They would have known the excitement and the rumblings of his teachings and miracles. And based on all the miraculous things he would have done, that this moment was coming. All that had been prophesied before him, there was a moment coming. And they had just enough connection to the Roman Empire to think, oh wait, there could be some connection. There could be, there could be a turning over. There could be a new change happening. As we know, Jesus' entry took, took place at the beginning of Passover. And even at this time, the, the illustration that's happening, Passover, has nothing to do with war. It has everything to do with God being celebrated for his provisions for us. Of him leading out his people out and freeing them from Egyptian rule and celebrating that. And so here Jesus is offering himself up towards the temple, coming in at the gates and us the people completely missing out on what's happening around them. And so instead of a horse, he comes in on a donkey, an ultimate symbol of peace. Talk about an illustration of humility. And then after this entry, what does he do? He heads straight to the church, he heads straight to the temple, right? He goes into the temple, and all four books of the gospel talk about this, and especially in Mark 11, I want to read what he does as he goes into, he has this triumphal entry. All the people are celebrating. And then he goes, starting in verse 15, he heads to the temple. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the, table, the tables of the money changers. And the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them. And saying to them, it is not written, my house should be called a house. Is it not written that my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. See, Jesus entering the temple is an important component of the uh, triumphal entry that we sometimes try to separate out. We often view Jesus as overturning the, uh, the tables as an angry Jesus, as, as a him letting out his frustration of what was going on and the wrongdoings of the time. But when we look at the text, all four of the Gospels, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 2, there's a symbolism that I know for myself is really easy to miss. That Jesus is entering the temple and freeing sacrificial animals as a statement about how Jesus has came to be the ultimate sacrifice himself. The beauty of what, what, that he is about to upend the systems of corruption and of death and injustice. That the kingdom of God that he is ushering in is not one that is based on class, is not one based on preferential treatment to those who have more or means or whatever it may be, but one that literally welcomes all. One that literally says, all have sinned and all are welcome. It was more about mercy and humility than it was about anything else. So while the Jewish people were busy looking for a Messiah to come in ways that they wanted, they were missing what was actually happening around them. And I think about myself, how often I get so caught up in my own religious kind of systems and kind of habits and things, and I miss out on God literally being present around me and his work being present around me. 
when I was thinking about and preparing for this, uh, this morning, uh, I love movies, and um, I was thinking about one, I don't know why one in particular kept coming to mind, um, it's one that you may have seen called uh, Hacksaw Ridge, and it's based on a true story about a gentleman named Private, um, sorry, Private Dawson, Private um, Desmond Dawson, and Private uh, Dawson enters, or gets enlisted into to the army, but he refuses to carry any sort of weapon with him. He doesn't want to carry a, a rifle, a gun of any sort. And he's quoted as his intention is to save lives, to not take them. And as you can imagine, this, the movie illustrates how even through training, his comrades are constantly berating him. His comrades are constantly beating him up, ridiculing him, and completely unwilling to accept him because he refuses to conform to what they expected as the norm. No one who trained with Dawson could imagine anyone entering a war unarmed. And why would they? And as I was thinking about this, I can only imagine like the emotion of Dawson's comrades being similar to those of Jerusalem. They had a mindset from all their teachings, from all of the things they had seen around them. They had a mindset wanting, so, a deeply rooted mindset, that knowing that at some point there had to be a leader, their champion, their leader coming to upend all of the Roman rule. They had, the, they had the mindset that, they, that this leader would come up and rise up and overthrow the oppression they had. They had an expectation that they wanted, that they would be completely free from the oppressed government. But when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, even on a donkey, many of them thought this could be the moment. This could be the moment everything changes. And they were right about that, but not in the way that they wanted or expected. And said, Jesus' arrival, it disrupted all the things that they had going on. But here's what's wild about this. Jesus didn't go after the Roman government at the time. He went to the temple and he started calling out the acts of the injustice. The acts within the church were the abuse of power, the abuse of the poor, and denying worship to vulnerable people was happening. This was the place where he said people needed to be healed. That the church is a place that people come for refuge not to outcast outsiders, not to say those who are unclean and those who are lame and blind and unworthy are not to be here. No, no, no. He said the opposite. He said, what I am going to do is I'm going to welcome them all because all should be welcome. And so he rebukes the religious leaders and the people of the day who wanted and continued to miss the point that what the kingdom of God was all about, that the kingdom of heaven is for all and to all. And I think about, unfortunately, today, that we too sometimes, when it comes to our, to our mentality in Christ, that we have particular ways that we think Christ should be showing up. We think that he should support our particular agenda or that he should be fulfilling the, what we think should be happening. And I think there's three questions, at least there were three questions I came up with in my own life I have to constantly ask. And I, and I would challenge you to do the same when it comes to fighting against these injustices, when it comes to fighting, putting Jesus into the box in which my own construct creates. The first is this, do I practice inclusion or exclusion? And what I mean by this is do I put obstacles in the way of people to worship God? Do I put obstacles in the way, and particularly of vulnerable people, people who were deemed less than when it comes to our society and our communities, that maybe they seem different, they seem odd, they seem, I don't know, maybe I don't want to be associated with. And am I the one that's creating blocks and exclusion and walls that keep them from being able to come and feel loved, to feel welcomed. 
The second, and this is not a pro-Democrat, and it's definitely not a pro-Republican question, it's literally asking, do the politics that I have, are they align, do I try to align them with Jesus, or am I forcing Jesus to align to my views and my politics? And last, do we silence voices of those we look down on and disagree with? Or do we sit down with open hands, open hearts, open minds, and say, listen, like, I want to hear your story. I want to hear what has led you to this moment. Not because I want to respond, not because I'm trying to force an agenda, because I want to love people and I want to meet people right where they're at, just as Jesus did all throughout his ministry. None of these questions mean I align with everything in our society today. But it does mean I do sit and I listen with a heart of humility. And I want to ask questions second. I want to understand. I don't want to force. I want to love people and meet people where they're at. And I see that time and time and time again all through Jesus' ministry. Jesus wants to literally disrupt our lives but he does so all through examples of scripture. Like, just look at the backgrounds of the disciples, right? They were rejects, outcasts, a group that didn't fit the status quo of society, they, a group of ragamuffins. And it all started with a disruption by just Jesus meeting them and meeting us in our brokenness. Every one of us sinful and broken. Jesus wanted to overturn the places of injustice and clean out the lies of idolatry. And he did so in order to make space for healing, not for agendas. You know, as Christ followers, we're called to be an usher in the kingdom of God. And I have to ask myself constantly, what am I doing to help that out? Am I being a hindrance or am I doing things that are Christ-like, that are opening up doors for opportunities for people to come be at the altar? Jesus wanted so much more than just to free the people from the oppressive regime of the time. He wanted to ultimately bridge our broken relationship caused by sin to God. And that's what this week, this Holy Week leading up to is what he was doing. He wanted to bring about a true and everlasting peace that ushered in a kingdom of love, a kingdom of grace, a kingdom of truth, and a, just a kingdom of beauty for his people, all of us. And when I think about this week, I realize so many times Jesus is about to face betrayal after betrayal, and especially in the days leading up to where we're headed over the next few days, how he's, the strangers who celebrated him, the, his own followers, even some of his best friends, ultimately turning their backs on him. And every time Jesus was given an opportunity to give up on people, to give up on, really on us, he's, to stop caring and having every justification to do so, he just would turn and love us, love me right where I'm at in my own brokenness. Instead of choosing to do the expected thing, he completely went against the grain and did not give up, did not take revenge. He chose love and forgiveness instead, even all the way to his death. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul in chapter 1 writes these words to describe Jesus' response in uh, verses 13 and 14. He says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have the redemption, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is where I want to end with tonight, or this morning. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he wasn't seeking glamour, he wasn't seeking the self-serving righteousness. No, he was seeking a sacrifice that he knew he had to make for each and every one of us. He challenged 
over and over the practices of the day which created boundaries, which created disruption, which created obstacles for those to come, the lame, the sick, the mistreated, all the list can go on, and instead said, no, 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 no. My kingdom is about mercy. My kingdom is about being grace-filled. My kingdom is about us participating in it now out of love. And so as we enter Holy Week this week, my challenge for us is that we enter and look for ways to show Jesus in everyday conversations, in everyday places, that we may examine our own lives so that we can see others instead of out of judgment, but out of love and extend grace and mercy that maybe we repent of the times that we have created walls of exclusion and that we repent of the times that we have said, you know what, people aren't good enough to be in my presence whether we've done so knowingly or unknowingly. That we look for ways to fulfill the kingdom of God as we have been called to do as Christ's followers. That we are people of love, that we are people of grace, that we are people of mercy, that we are people of peace. And we do so all because we know of the relationship we have in Christ. Mark 10, 45 reminds us, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for the many. That is my prayer for us this morning. That in knowing this, that we may find peace in our own lives. And then as a result, we take action for the kingdom. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning broken, unworthy, in need of a Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that as we enter into this Holy Week, that we are not filled with our own selfish desires, ambitions, our own, like, look at us, triumphal entries, but instead we are reminded of you. We are reminded of the sacrifice that you made for each and every one of us in this room, Lord, that, that you made for me. And Lord, I am thankful for that. I am thankful that you meet me in my brokenness. Despite it all, Lord, we pray these things.